This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 855 AM, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Show. Uh, tonight we are going to meet three people from the new group Farmers for Climate Action. Viv will talk to the CEO, uh, Verity Morgan Schmidt, who is over in WA. Then she has farmer Charlie Pell on the line to talk about climate action, which is his case, which in his case is a lot about getting winds and tur- wind turbines on farms. At about 5.30, I will speak to another of the farmers for climate change action, for climate action, Annika Molesworth. Farmers for Climate Action is a new professional group of people on the front line of climate change in Australia. They see their crops affected by falling rainfall or intensified floods like we've just had after Cyclone Debbie. They're calling for strong action on carbon pollution so they can go on feeding and clothing millions of people around the world. We'll meet now the CEO of Farmers for Climate Action, Verity Morgan Schmidt, and she's the new CEO, so welcome, Verity. How are you enjoying your job? Hi, Vivian. Thank you so much for having me on the program. It's great to be able to talk to you. Um, Fantastic job, fantastic organisation. And as you said, you know, farmers are on the front line of climate change and so farmers across Australia are standing up and saying that we've sort of, we've had enough of seeing our, our crops ling on the stalks. We need to see some strong action on climate change in this country. How are your members different from other farmers associations? I suppose one of the ways that we are really different is that our focus is around climate. So we obviously have a large number of farmers engaged with us that are also involved with state farming organisations or with some of the peak bodies representing various industries and commodities. So our focus is really all around the climate, how farmers can call for action on climate change and also really importantly how farmers can be part of the solutions that we need to see. Well I'm very happy to see farmers for climate action getting on the front foot to prevent more coal and gas projects for example I get emails about various things to sign petitions you know about the coal mine Gadani coal mine for example that's unusual for farmers in my experience does this represent what a large proportion of farmers actually think? Oh Vivian it certainly represents all those farmers that I'm speaking to and what we've seen for so long is that farmers are being uh, their rights are being overridden by mining companies by politicians who are heavily engaged with those mining companies and so what we're seeing now is farmers starting to push back to say no we've had enough we are standing up for our land we are standing up for our water and we are going to ensure that we can continue to farm in Australia for future generations you mentioned uh, the Adani project and we have recently less than oh, two weeks ago we launched a petition with a Queensland farmer a third generation uh, grazier from out at Longreach fantastic guy who's very concerned about the impact that Adani is going to have on the groundwater with their unlimited license for 60 years and so what we have seen is in the space of two weeks that petition calling on the state premier to rescind that unlimited water license has received more than 35,000 signatories now I don't know about you but that says a huge amount to me about Australians saying no our future lies in clean energy it lies in food security And they are issues that Australian farmers and Australian rural communities are going to stand up for. 
Well, I really welcome that. I remember there were there have been several big rallies in Sydney where farmers came from long distances. I interviewed them. Some of them been driving for seven hours or something to get there, and we had these big rallies with that banner: "Protect our water, protect our land." Farmers and city united we stand, and I love that. And but sometimes I interviewed people they didn't want calcium gas they didn't want coal mines on their property but when we went to the climate question they go ooh well that's a bit of a bridge too far they they totally understood the local impacts but they didn't want to talk about climate change and I wonder if that's causing some of the voting patterns in Australia of people who are still conservative about climate change and they don't want to vote governments that will actually take action. Yeah, it's a really, really complex issue. And what we are seeing is that more and more farmers are starting to recognise that changes to the global climate are actually really starting to have on-farm impacts. And that's what farmers are measuring on a day-to-day basis. They're seeing an increase in their frost risk. They're seeing changes to their growing season. And they're seeing life getting harder and harder on the land. We conducted a survey as Farmers for Climate Action uh, last year where we looked at some of these issues and we talked to farmers and we surveyed over 1,300 farmers from Mm. right across Australia. And what we found out was that nine out of every 10 farmers that we spoke to were really concerned about damage to the climate. So this is an issue that farmers are really waking up to. Uh, Some are very aware of, others are starting to raise their awareness and we're really starting to see farmers get onto the front foot with this issue. Well, you mentioned the hardships and I talked recently with uh, someone from the Foundation for Rural and Regional Renewal and they were talking to me about Cyclone Debbie and I think most city Australians are worried about country communities facing these more frequent weather catastrophes that, you know, after it's all gone off the media, people are still picking up the pieces and uh, often they they go into huge debt and uh, they can't actually re restart their business, their farming business. So could you tell us about some of the details or some case studies of the hardships that people are facing? Yeah, it's great that you mentioned Cyclone Debbie. I guess if, uh, one of the things that I would raise as well is that it's the more silent, silent issues that are occurring. So drought at the moment, you know, there are parts of Queensland, 70% of Queensland at the moment is still drought declared. There are areas that are entering their fifth year, five consecutive years of having failed summer rains. I'm out in the wheat belt uh, in Western Australia as we speak and what I'm seeing all around me is absolutely one of the driest starts to the season on record. So farmers out here, they're really, really hurting and they need support right now. So that Foundation for Regional Re- uh, Renewal, they, they do give support, but what sort of support are, is your organisation asking for? Are you making demands on government or is it something else? Yep, okay, so what we need to see from government is first of all we need strong action to cut our carbon pollution so that we can actually alter the trajectory that we are currently on. So farmers are on the front line of climate change and we need our government to start taking action. We need there to be support for innovative solutions to help farmers adapt to a changing climate as well because farmers are absolutely on the front... Sorry, I'm just going to move away from the land, Vivian. Yes, okay. Might have to cut that little bit. Okay. Um, It's almost getting time for his bottle, so (laughs) it's a little bit busy. Sorry, Vivian, I'm glad this is live. Um, <laughs> You've you so, got a lamb having been bottle-fed. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, it's a drought, and <laughs> you tend to abandon their lambs during a drought, and so if you find them, you pick them up and bring them home. Oh, I think we'll leave that in, though, because that really paints the picture. That's it. <laughs> That's the reality for you. I can leave the lamb in. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, sorry about that. Um, So the Foundation for Rural and Regional Renewal do an absolutely fantastic job supporting farmers out and about. So what we need to see is more broader support from our politicians as well. We need to see engagement on these issues and we need to see some of those dots being connected. Yeah. Well, look, I'd like to move now to some of the emissions that actually come from the land sector. Beyond Zero Emissions uh, wrote a book, it was a discussion paper on the land sector, and they found that land clearing and logging are a massive source of greenhouse gas emissions and uh, I've been recently interviewing people about wildlife and I found out that the pollinators like flying foxes are starving as their trees are progressively cleared and my impression is that those the people who or the lobby group that most want clearing are broadacre agribusinesses are you sort of in dialogue with them 
Yes, absolutely in dialogue. And across our supporter base, we have a number of diverse views on these issues, on issues like land clearing and biodiversity. Um, Farmers for Climate Action is really committed to ensuring that we do support biodiversity and we do manage our lands in a way that is beneficial not only for farmers but also for the broader environment. It is a very complex issue and many farmers do feel very passionately. There are historical precedents which are still being, I guess, still weighing quite heavily on the minds of farmers. So we do need to be very cognizant of the the environment in which we are operating when we are talking about issues like land clearing and ensure that we work with farmers to ensure a positive way forward. Yes, that's right. I think it's a cultural change, which is something your group can really promote as a sort of educational organisation because it's not so long ago that we used to pay farmers to clear the land. We used to insist that they did cut down the trees. Now we're wanting them to sequester carbon in the trees and replant you know, native vegetation so that there's this biodiversity corridor. Um, it's, it's like a, a culture change, I suppose you and, and all the media have to work on it. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Vivian. Where I am at the moment out in the wheat belt, there are some parts of the wheat belt that are down to sort of 2 to 5% remnant vegetation. And that is terrifying. But we've got to remember, as you said, that farmers were being paid to clear the land and they were also being told that if they didn't clear it, they wouldn't be able to keep it. Yeah. It was part of the, uh, the uptake of, this, of certain areas. So we do really need to be very aware of the historical context and we need to be aware of the environment in which farmers are coming from and all of the other factors that come into play there. Well, what do you think about um, carbon farming? Well, I think carbon farming is a positive opportunity for farmers. Uh, It's a great opportunity to uh, improve the uptake. Um, Under the current ERF, it has been quite complex for farmers and there has been the requirement for uh, significant economies of scale, which not all farmers have been able to access. But I think the key message here, Vivian, is that we know that Australia's fossil fuel emissions are actually significantly more than what we can currently sequester in our land sector. Mm. So we need to be mindful that carbon farming is not the only solution. And I think occasionally we have had some of our politicians get a bit carried away and purely focus on carbon farming when we also need to be cutting those emissions. That's right, and need to cut the emissions from the land sector, which is partly through the clearing. But another source of emissions that I've read about in the BZE material is methane from livestock. And I have interviewed people on supplements, seaweed supplements and um, leukina fodder yeah, up in Queensland, yeah. you know, a sort of a silvy pasture, agriculture like that. It's mixed use of the paddock so that they have trees and leukina and other, that then leukina can become a weed and I understand that's all very complex too. Yeah. <laughs> so I've, I've explored that a bit but s- some other scientists will say we've just got to cut down the national herd. There's just too many cloven-footed animals, you know, up, especially up in the northern rangelands, in the Queensland rangelands and it's just you know, destroying all the ground cover and uh, in a drought they don't survive anyway. It's, it's really terrible terribly wasteful. So uh, what are your thoughts about methane from livestock? How are the farmers that you know working innovations or improving or culling their herd or cutting it down to sustainable levels? What's happening? Vivian, I think it's a really exciting space and I'm certainly not going to um, say that I would align myself with scientists who are saying we need to cut the national herd. There are really exciting gains being made in research into methane production in animals. Uh, One of the really exciting things for farmers is that Reducing the methane through our management strategies is also really beneficial in terms of productivity. So it's a win-win for farmers if we can get this solution right. There is more research needed in this state. We also need to be aware that some of the solutions that may work in a feedlot environment or in a southern Australian environment won't necessarily work right across Australia and out in the rangelands. So we need to be mindful of the incredibly different operating environments in which farmers are producing livestock across Australia and we need to support farmers as we improve our management practices across the board to manage methane and other emissions. Yeah, well that's that's what I discovered that on feedlots and also on the coastal farms people can rotate their animals and you know cut down on emissions quite well there and or balance them but it's on those northern rangelands I felt that's where the big agribusiness and it's also out of sight out of mind there's not that much coverage of it I wondered what you think the way forward for those intensive farming operations 
is. Yeah, so there's certainly huge opportunities to engage with the pastoral sector and I know many pastoralists who are very interested in these issues and who are keen to uh, continue to improve their management practices as we look into the future. Good, all right. Well, I hope in the future we can interview some of them because I think that's a topic I'd like to keep in the public eye. I think that the Farmers for Climate Climate Action could build alliances like there's one for health professionals called Climate and Health Alliance and they've recently had a coup in Canberra getting the health impacts of climate change on the agenda. And I wonder what, what your goals are for the farming sector. Well, firstly, I'd like to add my congratulations to the um, the coalition, uh, the uh, climate and health coalition. They have just yeah. done a phenomenal job. It's good, I'm, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, so blown away by that. So what we are seeking to do from the farming community is really open up the space for all the other peak bodies and state farming organisations and all of those organisations who traditionally are, uh, I guess, a little bit more conservative in the way they approach these issues and to ensure that we are able to have a really good dialogue about these issues. I guess one of the things that it's very important to remember is that farmers are such a diverse group and there are a whole range of perspectives and a whole range of issues that farmers are dealing with on a daily basis and a changing climate really is only one of them. However, we believe that it is one of the most critical ones for us to deal with and so we're going to continue to work work with all of the players in this space and all of the bodies that are involved in this space to actually be able to pursue uh, the need for climate action to support Australian farmers. Thank you very much for speaking to us, Verity. I'll let you get back now to feeding the lambs. But but we've just been speaking to Verity Morgan-Schmidt from Farmers for Climate Action, and I'm sure we'll hear more from your group in the future. Thank you very much, Vivian. It was a pleasure. Feeling shortchanged by all the doom and gloom of climate change and want to help? Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. At VZE, we have a blueprint to help Australia become a thriving zero emissions economy, but we are dependent on public donations, so we need your help. To donate or find out more information, head to bze.org.au. That's bze.org.au. Charlie Prell is our next guest. He has a a sheep and cattle farm at Crookwell in New South Wales. Apart from being the co-chair of Farmers for Climate Action, he is also involved with the Australian Wind Alliance. So that's really up BZE's path and we're very interested in renewable energy in the country and uh, Charlie will be the best one to tell us about the latest developments. So thank you for taking time out to talk to us, Charlie. It's my pleasure, Vivian. It's nice to speak to anybody about energy and particularly renewable energy. I know you're a great advocate and champion for it. And I'd like to just start by telling us what it's like at Crookwell. We're in Melbourne and what's what's the landscape like there? It's windy, isn't it? <laughs> it's very windy. It's been uh, blowing strongly here for the last two or three days, but it's generally one of the better re- wind resources in New South Wales, this area between, I'm about an hour north of Canberra, the the region between Canberra, probably for 150 kilometres north, is a really good wind resource and most of it is agricultural land. One of the reasons I'm passionate about wind is the synergy between wind and wind turbines and farming. Yeah, it just seems to be a good match and my first experience of this, I came to Crookwell, my son drove me past there and he said, oh that's where the first wind turbine in New South Wales put up and then we went to Borrowa and the town of Borrowa seemed to be really divided down one side of the town there were lots of advertisements for a a potential wind farm and this is a few years ago on the other side there were these signs saying wind farms make us sick and pictures of wind wind turbines on fire and birds dead at the bottom of the wind tunnel. It was really strong advertising the other way. I know there's small country towns have been divided like this. Um, tell us what's happened at Burrawa and, and how you, that uh, opposition can be overcome. Part of my work ethic and part of my role is to work with the Australian Wind Alliance, which is a community organisation, to try and resolve those issues in small rural communities. The vast majority of those uh, issues are, are created by fear of the future of the unknown but also there's a there's a certain amount of vested interest in stopping wind turbines 
most of the vested interest is from people who are not hosting the wind turbines and, and pretty much to date, it's changing now, but pretty much to date wind developers have only consulted and negotiated with potential hosts to wind turbines, not the neighbours. So the neighbours are obviously a bit upset about hosts getting paid significant amounts of money and the neighbours getting nothing. That, that model's changing very quickly. It's the it's changing to a more of a community ownership type structure where the neighbours are included in the project so they receive some remuneration for looking at wind turbine, which is the only issue that they have. So what, what sort of money is involved? If, say, I had two turbines on my farm, what, what sort of payment per year would you get? Well, the, the general consensus, I'm not sure exact numbers on specific projects, but no. the general consensus is about $5,000 per megawatt capacity for the turbines. For the host, the neighbours, I'm not sure, but I think it's about something like $1,500 or something like that. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. It varies from project to project, yeah. and it's obviously all commercial in confidence, but that's a rough idea of the of the scale of the economic boost that's coming to rural Australia. Yeah, well, I think that's a very diplomatic way to arrange things. We had um, that Danish speaker. You probably met him. He came out uh, to Australia for the Sustainable Living Festival and my colleague Erin interviewed him and he was very much into that sharing of the benefits so yeah. that everybody in the community has a stake in it and the sickness and the headaches and the disapproval and the dislike just seems to settle down after that. Yeah, that's true. In, in Europe, because Europe's much more closely settled than Australia, particularly Denmark where Soren Hermansen is the, the guy you're referring yeah. to, the, the companies were obliged to really constructively engage with communities where they wanted to put up turbines. That didn't occur in Australia in the early days, but as I said, it's changing. And the ideal would be for those these pieces of infrastructure to be owned by the communities themselves, but because of the millions of dollars that are involved, most communities don't have the capacity to, to move into that path. But it's changing rapidly, as I said, in Australia, and, and my objective is to get equity sharing, to get benefit sharing from wind turbines into as many people's pockets as we can in rural Australia. Yeah. There's a good reason for that, because I'm a farmer, and the, the passive income stream from wind turbines, whether you're a host or a neighbour or just general community members, the passive income stream really adds a level of resilience to your farming operation in tough times, in droughts particularly, that, that can sustain you through those periods. And, and, and frankly, the more people that are getting access to that income, the better for, for them as, as individuals, but also for the communities themselves. Yeah, I, I feel, well, I spoke to a farmer at Borrowa back then when I did that program, and he said, look, it, it's drought-proofed my farm. I've been able to cut back my the number of sheep I'm grazing, so I'm not flogging the land as as I did have to before to cover all my costs. Yep. And he said also the roads that are put in for the wind time, you know, access roads, that's very helpful in a bushfire. And he was a firefighter. He said, look, those roads are just marvellous help yep. for us. Yep. They're, they're the benefits to wind turbines that are not spoken about by the, the opponents to wind turbines. But mm. you're right. The, the other thing is that the vast majority of objections to wind turbines are made by people but in areas where there is no wind turbine. So there's definitely a, a fear factor, as I said earlier. There's a fear factor of the spectre of the unknown. and the, Because the wind turbines are large, uh, people get, get frightened. And, mm. and once you're frightened, you can find anything you want on the internet to back up any argument you want to make. And some of the stories that have been told about wind turbines are just fatuous misinformation from... The, based on the internet stories that may or may not be true. Yeah, well, there, there have, there, it seems we've had a, like a, I don't know how many years, like five or ten years where it's all stalled about in wind farms, but how's it going now, would you say, in the places where the wind resource is really good? Is it, is it getting moving again now? It's, it's improving. The, the stall in development of renewable energy was totally due, absolutely 100% totally due, to the resistance of the Tony Abbott government, the spectre of that government being elected and then the reality of that government being in power, they were absolutely resistant to wind turbines particularly, but to renewable energy generally. So the market for renewable energy just shut down. The investment didn't happen. It was something like an 80% reduction in investment from the year before Tony Abbott was elected to the year after that. And that's continued until now. 
There is some revival of renewable energy in, in Australia. The, the numbers are just compelling. The, the supporters of renewable energy, the numbers of people who, who support renewable energy in Australia consistently are well above 70%. More, more likely 80% or more of the population are in favour of renewable energy. And even people that are living close to wind turbines or proposed wind farms are still, the vast majority of those people are still in favour of wind in, in my case, but renewable energy generally. Get back to the farm and climate change, mm. how it's affecting. What's the reality for you of these climate disruptions out in the paddocks? Listen, I'm, a, I'm the chair of the co-chair of, of the organisation you referred to, the Farmers for Climate Action. We've had, we're only very, very young, this organisation, but we've had massive interest in our organisation and from farmers across Australia to try and leverage our political representatives and our agro-political representatives to do, do more about addressing climate change. There's still the people out there who believe it's a socialist conspiracy or, you know, it's invented by China to take down America and that's oh, just yeah. rubbish. The, yeah. the amount of data out there about climate change is, is just compelling now. The big issue for us as farmers in Australia is that we're on the front line of the changing climate and we're going to get hit the hardest by climate change. The, the climate change forecasts are for much more variability in the weather systems for much hotter summers, for much longer heat waves, and also for much colder and more extreme winters, which we're experiencing, we have experienced it in the last couple of weeks. That impacts dramatically on your systems, agricultural systems, whether you're going grass or crops or animals. The variability of the weather is, is a real concern for farmers across Australia, from Queensland right through the eastern states across South Australia to Western Australia. And yeah. even in the Northern Territory, people are being impacted by extreme temperatures in the summertime, by the lack of reliable monsoon rains. That's the variability in the extremes is what is being predicted by the, the climate scientists. And from my experience, my personal experience, so far they're right. In fact, they're probably underestimating the, the change that's coming. Trend, that's what I have inter interviewed people from the Cyclone Debbie path, you know, farmers who've lost a huge amount and I don't know how they'll get back yeah. into solvency because they really have, it's, they've invested a lot of money and their crops are completely destroyed yeah. and um, also buildings and so on. It's just, and often the insurance companies aren't actually paying for flood damage because they say that's not caused by the cyclone, it's dispute about that so it's a lot yep. of people quite bitter about that yep. so it's hard and I've also been interviewing people about wildlife and I talked to someone the other day about uh, flying foxes and he said look oh, the flying fox has got a bad name but it's a major pollinator mm. and they're extending their range because they can fly you know tropical fruit, fruit, uh, fruit bats are come yeah. further south into Victoria but uh, they're starving because their their trees have been cleared and I think this there's a big problem about land clearing and also land clearing creates emissions doesn't it so farmers are you is your group working on uh, trying to throw the switch on all this massive amount of land clearing that's going on especially in Queensland and New South Wales. We're, we're working across a really diverse range of impacts, as you, as you said, and that includes land clearing. The issue, the main issue with land clearing is not that farmers are being um, banned from clearing native vegetation. Some, in some cases, that is actually productive, but the main issue is that those farmers have been asked to, to make personal sacrifices for the greater good, for the good of the state or the community or the country. And I don't see that as being fair or equitable. Now, there's lots of other issues, including coal mining, including... Coal seam gas. Yeah, coal yeah. seam gas is another one. There's lots of other issues that need to be addressed. Yeah. But all of those issues can be addressed in a really proactive way rather than stopping people doing things and just saying, no, you can't do that. Mm. Um, investigating why they may or may not want to do what, what they're doing, whatever that is, and then engaging with those people to, to come up with equitable solutions. Well, what are the best solutions you've heard of from other countries? You know, you talked about the guy from Denmark, and yep. people are coming to Australia quite often to share knowledge, or you can read about it. Yep. But what are the best solutions to give incentives to farmers to create wildlife corridors or to re-vegetate their marginal land or, you know, to sequester carbon, they have to be paid. I mean, it can't, as you say, they can sacrifice for the whole nation and everyone will benefit if they do yeah. preserve the land. Well, what are the best models? Well, I think one of the best examples of community engagement and, and assistance for 
farmers to plant trees in this case is, is the Landcare movement. Um, Landcare assisted farmers building fences and planting trees to the benefit of the greater good. They, the farmer, it was a 50-50 arrangement, so farmers had to contribute 50% of the cost of the project and, and the community invested 50% of the, the cost of the project. So good outcome for everybody. That's possible in all sorts of different ways, including, as my passion is, is wind. If, if we can assist companies to build wind turbines on our land as farmers, then that passive income stream, not only is it helping the climate by producing renewable energy, it's actually helping the farmers to run more sustainable farms so they don't have to push the land so hard. Yeah. Wind and solar. Solar as well is really important. Large-scale solar in Australia is very, very new, but it has the opportunity to, to do the same thing. Solar takes up more uh, land than wind turbines, but there's still an opportunity in, in less in the pastoral zones, in less less productive land, to yeah. put solar panels over the land. Is, is solar are solar farms compatible with crops? I mean, can you grow crops in between the panels? Uh, probably not crops, but they definitely can run sheep under solar panels. Mm. Probably not cattle because cattle tend to rub up and destroy everything they yeah. touch. Yeah. But, but um, there's definitely opportunities in grazing land to put solar panels in, and if they're properly designed and well spaced, the the land under the solar panels is not doesn't become desertified. It, it still grows grass under the solar panel. The change that's happening in in social structures, but in particularly in, in the energy infrastructure in Australia, scale of the change is a bit frightening sometimes, but it's just phenomenal. And for me, it's actually exciting because it's opening up huge opportunities for farmers to be part of the solution to climate change, as well as battling with the effects of climate change that we talked about earlier. I really like your approach because it's very conciliatory and very just sort of going to people where they are, like you're part of your community and I suppose you're speaking to people who are also leaders in their community and part, you're integrated in the community. They, some of them go back several generations on that land and, yeah. and that's a very good approach. We all know how urgent climate change is and yet we've got Canberra locked into these climate wars where they seem to be just yeah. talking about electricity prices and, yeah. and not getting the big picture. I mean, some of them do get the big picture but they seem to be... There's good news emerging though, Vivian, because I don't know whether you've heard, but the, the steelworks at Wyala was changed hands or was going to change hands and the new the new owner of the Wyala Steelworks, I think it's Arium Steelworks in Wyala, has, has already in, indicated that if, if they do gain ownership of that steelworks, they're going to power that steelworks from renewable energy, not from coal or gas or anything else, from renewable energy. Oh, and I hope some of that steel comes to be making turbines for you know, manufacturing oh, here. That would be fantastic, wouldn't, wouldn't it? it? Yeah. yeah. Just I remember another level of... Um, Engagement for, for the, you know for the local economy in Australian economy rather than importing everything from China or India or Vietnam wherever it comes from. Steel is a really strategic uh, product. We have the opportunity as a country to dictate terms about whether the turbines are manufactured in Australia or not. The good news is, as I just indicated, business has said to the polit- political world, "Well, we're going to do this without you." So. Large businesses, businesses large and small, are moving towards direct power purchase agreements with um, energy providers. The problem is that investment needs certainty. That certainty evaporated about five years ago, and it hasn't re- hasn't reemerged. But businesses are getting on with it despite the uncertainty. Look, well, I, I really hope that you know your lobbying efforts with people in government and in business and certainly your work among farmers to raise that sort of awareness of the advantages and and understand where they're coming from about the tree clearing and so on. I hope that it's a young organisation but I really wish you a great future. Yeah. Thanks for talking to us. No, that's my pleasure, Vivian. Any time and be happy to talk to you in the future. So that was a, a farmer at Crookwell in New South Wales called Charlie Prell. Right now, I am speaking live on the phone to Annika Molesworth, who is 2015 Australian Young Farmer of the Year. Annika began working on the family farm in Broken Hill, and her Master's in Sustainable Agriculture took her around Southeast Asia to research farming methods in Laos and Cambodia. Over there, she seemed particularly uh, impressed by the resourcefulness of local farmers and the precariousness of their position, a balancing act between sustainability and livelihood. Reading about Annika, you get a real sense of her connection to the land, its its beauty and its fragility. As a member of Farmers for Climate Action, she is also aware of the impact of climate disruptions to farming in the future. Hello, Annika. 
Hello, Kurt. So great to be with you. Ah, it's great to have you on. Um, so some some things I've read about your farm in Broken Hill seem really poetic. Uh, you talk about the change of seasons, riding horses, millions of budgies and wildflowers, but you don't indulge in sentimentality. Um, can you just describe for us when you first realised how climate change was affecting your family farm in Broken Hill? Yeah, I guess I am really lucky to have my family farm out at Broken Hill in this wild, semi-arid environment. And to me, it is just the most beautiful landscape. And my parents purchased the farm in the year 2000, which unfortunately, as we know, was the start of the decade-long millennium drought. And, you know, that's not the best time to buy a farm. And it really was apparent to me, like, how... You know, how fragile the land is out there, how susceptible it is to changing climatic conditions. And now the Broken Hill region is naturally a hot and a dry bioregion, but it's, it's extremely fragile. It's projected to become hotter and drier with more frequent and intense dust storms. And that really drove me to pursue a career in how to build resilience to these to climate change in these very vulnerable farming systems. Yeah, well, it's 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 really great to hear you to to speak hear you speak about that connection to the land because there's an unfortunate enduring stereotype throughout uh, city Australia of farmers as battling against nature, um, clear brutally clear the, the land, uh, use European techni- techniques that don't don't make sense. It's it's an outdated stereotype. But but what portrait would you draw of farming techniques today? I actually think farmers are environmentalists first and foremost mm. because they live and work so closely to the environment. They know exactly how important it is to look after those basic building blocks of life, to look after the soil, to look after the water, the biodiversity, our the atmosphere. And farmers in Australia do really care for this, this natural world that is in their hands, that they're custodians of. And I, and I think farmers in Australia are doing incredible things uh, you know, to produce food in a country that is, is, is very challenging. It is the land of uh, droughts and flooding rains. Yeah. Um, it's got vast distances. It's got few people out there. Less than 1% of Australia's populations are farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are a lot of challenges facing us, but the farmers that I know are doing great things in working and caring for the natural world. Lovely. I'd like to touch on that because you're you're a member of Farmers for Climate Action. Um, so how, how does that group try influencing uh, farming practice? Yeah, so Farmers for Climate Action is an alliance of farmers and agricultural leaders who are working with our peers and the wider sector and decision makers mm. to make sure Australia takes the actions necessary to address the damage to our climate. So we're doing that through multiple means. That's working one-on-one with farmers. Uh, that's holding uh, workshops. That's providing information. It's also working very closely with science, scientists too, agricultural scientists, because when we take action as farmers to mitigate emissions or adapt to a changing climate, we need you know the the best knowledge available. So very important to work with scientists. And then, of course, we need to work with the policymakers. We need to make sure that there are strategies mm-hmm. in place to ensure a vibrant and a bright future for farmers. And that has direct flow-on effect to the wider community, to um, to the nation. Yeah, yeah, and and um, the future of, of food production as well, which I'd just like to 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 touch on and. I, I, I feel that there's there's kind of an instinctive idea in the cities that there exists a tension between population growth, more mouths, mouths to feed, uh, and and the facts of climate change, where farming land is becoming threatened with floods and droughts. Uh, how 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 do we navigate this paradox? Yeah, you're totally correct. I mean, we need to produce more food for a growing global population with a reduced environmental footprint. And, you know, that's definitely not an easy thing to do because 
we've got ecosystem degradation, we've got ch- climate change, and this is thrown onto the farmer's plate of, you know, produce more with less right now. Yeah. Um, big challenges to carry on a farmer's shoulders. So that's why it is so important that we have, um, you know, investment into research so we know exactly what is happening in the natural world, so we have the best understanding of it and the best understanding of how humans can interact with the natural world, how to look after our soils, how to look after the vegetation um, and how to reverse some of the, the damages that we have caused as a wider society. How can we capture carbon and put that back into the soils? And also looking more widely, how we can transition to renewable energies. Mm-hmm. And this is where I think farmers have this fantastic opportunity to play an important role because farmers do have these, you know, wide open spaces. They've got, you know, brilliant blue skies above them. They have the potential to host solar and wind farms which provides, you know, clean energy to the farming business, but also provides farmers with a secondary and a stable source mm-hmm. of income. So a win-win situation there. So there are various means that farmers can play a really positive role in not only feeding a growing population, but looking after the environment, enhancing the environment and, um, you know, playing a a champion role in climate change action. Yeah, and they they really are. I was watching um, ABC Landline the other day and they interviewed one farmer and the title they gave him at the bottom of the screen was Farmer Slash Inventor and it seemed, <laughs> seemed a little strange to me today that individuals were still called inventors, like... Um, kind of since like the 18th century or something. But I, I, I get the feeling that farmers are amongst the most innovative people in the country. Um, and, and how are they, how are they responding to climate change with their own sense of, uh, kind of innovation and, and, and by inventing new things, how are they picking this kind of stuff up? Yeah, farmers are these incredible beings who are very creative. And I think it's because Every day, really, there's a new challenge thrown the way of a farmer and they have to be incredibly resourceful and, um, and creative. And a few examples of that, I mean, livestock, they've got greater survival rates these days. They're producing less methane. Uh, in cropping systems, we use soil sensors that provide real-time data mm. on soil moisture. Uh, I'm doing research in the Riverina district, and we're using drones to, ca- to gather aerial imagery of crop health, which helps us to water better and yep. control weeds more accurately. So the use of sensors, automation, engineering, and improved genetics are are being used in the paddocks today by farmers. And I really do think that in the future, these, you know, these innovations, these technologies will only be more impressive. Yeah. And, um, but, but it's not just high tech solutions, is it? I mean, like, I, I, reading your stuff, and I was blown away by the inventiveness of uh, farmers in, in Southeast Asia, too. So how are they responding to climate change? Yeah, uh, the, the farmers in Southeast Asia that I work with um, are incredible people, and so I feel very lucky to be working with them because um, they, they're very in, attuned to the natural world, and, you know, materialistically, they don't have as much as Australian farmers, but they they know exactly, you know, how long the dry season is extending each year. And they describe to me the insects that they see eating their crops uh, that they hadn't seen in the past. So they are very aware of how the climate and their world is changing. And within their own limited means, they are being resourceful and trying to change their practices because farmers in the developing world really are, you know, right on the cliff edge. They are right at the coalface of a changing climate. And, uh, you know, these people, they don't have much adaptive capacity. And if they get struck by a drought or a flood or a family illness even, they really tumble further into hardship. And I think it is so important that we do recognise that many farmers right around the world are struggling today to produce that food that is needed and we really need to 
watch out for them and work closely with them. Yeah. Um, and I notice also in Asia that there's uh, the demand for meat and dairy products, um, which is a big money spinner for us and and. But more grazing in Australia means higher emissions here with um, with methane. Uh, we've spoken on this program with a scientist investigating seaweed to cut down on animal methane, but that doesn't work in the, if the vast majority of our livestock are out on the rangelands. Um, do you do you kind of have a solution for that? Well, yes, as you say, that um, these emerging economies. They are fueling middle-class growth and protein consumption is growing. Mm. Um, and so, you know, society is progressing, but not without its challenges. In regards to the methane being produced by the livestock, look, there's, there's no silver bullet, I guess, in, mm-hmm. for any of these big mega challenges. But it is so important that we have, you know, a, a multi-pronged attack of these issues. And yes, as you mentioned, some researchers are looking at the possibility of feeding cattle and sheep um, seaweed and algae supplements, and there's some terrific results being shown that yes. that is reducing methane. Another way is in the genetics, uh, breeding livestock and sheep and goats, mm-hmm. uh, ruminants, uh, that you know genetically produce less methane. Uh, looking at the gut bacteria. So there's some great research projects going out there at the moment and we just have to make sure that, you know, there is investment for that kind of research, that, you know, their findings are being distributed to farmers and to, um, you know, people who can develop new technologies or breeds or practices. So we have to make sure that these these good news stories are getting out there. Yeah, that's great. Um, so as a... <laughs> Maybe moving on to something that's less of a good news story. I mean, one major area which farmers have exacerbated, and we, we were talking about it in a previous interview with um, with uh, with um, Charlie Prell, and that was farmers have exacerbated the effect of climate change with land clearing, which is not only um, strips of land uh, of trees that could function as carbon sinks, but it also means the carbon absorbed by those trees are being released back into the atmosphere. So what, what would you characterise as the current attitude towards land clearing in the farming community? Sure. Yeah, well, obviously, I mean, uh, some agricultural practices of the past, some agricultural practices of the present are unregrettable and they are unsustainable and they're not helping anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and which goes back to my last point that we really have to do make a conscious effort to champion those farmers who are doing it right. Um, the, the current perception, I guess, in the, the wider farming community, as far as I understand, is that, you know, we do want to look after the natural world as, as best we can. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of challenges facing farmers to produce more. There's slimmer profit margins in many cases. And so some people are, you know, regrettably do go down that pathway mm-hmm. of, you know, trying to squeeze a little bit more out of their land. Yep. And so perhaps, you know, one way of counterbalancing that, you know, what if we, what about in the supermarkets if we paid more for food? If farmers got a better price for what they are producing, then they aren't, they don't have their backs against the wall. They aren't squeezed to, um, you know, to take on, you know, land clearing and, and practices that I'm sure they don't want to do, but, you know, perhaps they're just forced into into these places that yeah. they don't want to be. Yeah, and it's really unfortunate the relationship between the two major um, grocery store chains and the uh, farmers and how much they're getting squeezed. Look, thank you uh, so much for coming on the show, Annika. Um, now, to find out more information on what Annika is up to and farmers for climate change action for climate action, sorry, you can follow her Twitter, which is. Annika Molesworth, A-N-I-K-A-M-O-L-E-S-W-O-R-T-H. Thank you, Annika. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. 
I'm Jane Clifton, author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of The Address Book. I've always been fond of 3CR, and not just because they played the song by my band Stiletto, Woman in Trouble, 50,000 times. I was grateful for that, but that was a few years ago. Here I am again after all these years, and so is 3CR, still supporting musicians and writers and people with ideas to share. Keep going, 3CR. All right. Uh, There are a lot of actions happening in the community this week, as well as practical ways you can personally make a difference. So how long have you been waiting to do that? I see it as a positive for for the environment as well as a form of self-therapy. Dumbo Feather is a newsletter that is inviting you to participate in an eight-week climate change challenge. Each week you'll receive a newsletter containing actions that you can take to help fight against climate change. Although it began on the 13th of August, you still have time to involve yourself if you hurry up. Go to DumboFeather.com and click the link to the article Dumbo Feather Climate Change. And this Wednesday, which is the 23rd of August, at the Spotted Mallard on 314 Sydney Road, Brunswick, Climate for Change is having a Game of Thrones trivia night at 6.30pm with all the proceeds going to that organisation, which is doing some really great uh, grassroots community action. Uh, climate for change. Uh, now you can you, you have to get tickets for that, but from what I hear, they did a Harry Potter trivia night last time, and it went really, really well. It was really popular. Um, so just head to www.spottedmallard.com/events to get your tickets there. And if it seems like we're north of the wall this winter, which is a Game of Thrones reference, so if you if you don't watch it, don't worry. You might want to watch something. Get Up in the North is holding a screening of the French climate action film Domain tomorrow, which is tomorrow, I think. Uh, one of the highlights of this year's Transition Film Festival, which will be on Thursday, 31st of August at 6.30pm at the Palace Westgast Cinema, which will be très bon. Uh, there's also a screening for that festival, and you can get tickets on the same site, um, for Age of Consequences by Sherry Goodman, who we had on the show back in June. So there's plenty to do there. Now, I'd just like to thank our guests so much uh, this week for climate uh, Farmers for Climate Action. That's CEO Verity Morgan-Schmidt co-chair Charlie Prell, and farmer of for climate action Annika Molesworth. For more info, you can visit their site, which is farmersforclimateaction.org.au. Thank you to Andy for working the desk, Vivian for her interviews, Teddy for getting the podcast up, and I'm Kurt Johnson, and this is 3CR. <laughs> 